Lord, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love of you. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. So in this Heaven and Earth series, where God is teaching us what he desires for his kingdom to look like here on earth, he's given us these three vineyard parables. And having grown up in a church called the Vineyard, I love talking about the Vineyard. And this time, where we are in the Vineyard parables, the third message is he's talking now to the high priests. And we saw last week, he gave the first half of his talk to the high priests after he's just kicked the money changers out of the temple after he's given them kind of a verbal lashing, because they came to him the next day when he came to teach in the temple, and they asked him, by what authority are you doing this? Who gave you, who put you in charge of this temple? And we talked about how their mistake was not in telling, you know, keeping order in the kingdom, but it was in not recognizing the son. And so now Jesus is continuing. He told them a parable of the vineyard last week, with the two sons, how one said, no, I'm not going to do what you said, but then he went and did it anyway, representing the Gentile people and all the people who were not supposed to follow the word of God, but did. And the other son who was supposed to follow God, he said that he was going to follow God. He said he was going to do what God said, and he didn't. And so now (laughs) Jesus has basically shut them down completely, just straight up shut them down. And now he's going on to his next parable, also of the vineyard. Because you have to realize, here's the scene. Jesus is standing in the temple, and there are hundreds, probably thousands of people all standing around them, watching this confrontation of the high priests versus Jesus. And everybody's listening, and now the high priests have decided, we're going to keep our mouths closed, because this isn't going well for us. And so Jesus then gives another parable, again, about the high priests and about the people of Israel. Because the high priests looked great with their robes and their bells and their golden ponchos, but they were missing the gospel being presented right in front of them in the person of Jesus Christ himself. They were the ones who said outwardly, we are going to follow God and going to do what he says to do, but then inwardly, And in all the days of their lives, they refuse to do it. So Jesus today gives our third vineyard parable to show the people of Israel their sins and to help them turn away from their fake lives to truly listen and to do the will of the Father. And then he gets prophetic. And you know when Jesus gets prophetic, it's about to go down. You know what I mean? Like, he's ready. And so the way that he gets prophetic is he's about to show them Not only what they're about to do in the next week. Because this is the week leading up to his crucifixion. But he also gives a prophecy, this prophetic parable, not just of what was going to happen in the next week, but what was going to happen for all time after that. He tears away the veil and helps us to see the true nature of reality of what it means to be human. 
Jesus is going to show us the nature of God. And we're going to see how Jesus is challenging us to live our lives. And I want you to notice the imagery in this parable. Because this parable is loaded with imagery. And if we listen to it the way that we just did with the gospel being read, we're going to miss all that imagery. So we're going to spend some time breaking down what this meant to the Jewish population that were listening to this in the temple, basically in the coming days right before Passover. And Jesus is going to challenge us on how to live our lives. So let's go to Matthew chapter 21. If you have your Bibles, please open to them. If someone can pass them out to people who don't have them, that would be good. Matthew chapter 21, verse 33. Jesus is saying to the people of Israel at this point, Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard, and he put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it, and built a tower, and leased it to tenants, and went into another country. Now, how long did it take me to say that? Not very long, right? But there's so much just in that part. (laughs) We can't just rush past that. We have to pay attention to that. So let's stop and look at all that detail, because how easy of it would it have been for Matthew to just say, there's a master who had a vineyard, and there was people. (laughs) That would have been really easy, but he doesn't do that. He goes into all this other detail. Listen to all the details. There's the master. Now, you guys know who's the master. Who's the master? God. God's the master. What's the vineyard? Israel, the people of God, the world, all of creation. We could say all of those things. The vineyard in the Old Testament was always identified as the holy nation of Israel, And when Jesus came, what we're going to see in this parable, his intention was saying, that's not the only people of God anymore. Now it's going to be the church is going to be all of the people of God, Jews and Gentiles alike. And then he puts a fence around the vineyard. Now in other translations, I actually like the other translation better for this word, a hedge. Because they didn't really build fences. There wasn't a whole lot of woods. Instead, they planted a bunch of plants, brambles and bushes and all that kind of stuff, all around the vineyard. And here's where it gets interesting. Because at this point, all the church fathers have agreed up till now until we get to the hedge. But when I was looking through the church fathers, everyone had something different to say about this hedge and what it represented. The hedge, according to one church father, could be the literal wall around Jerusalem. It could also be the guardianship of angels. Also the protection of the holy fathers who were set up as a wall around the people protecting them from straying off. Or it could simply be God's own providence. But whatever way you want to look at it, the message is the same and that's this. God is the one who protects his people. That's the message. And today, sometimes we can get feeling like we're a little lost and like there's wolves nipping at our heels, but we need to know that God is the one who protects his people. When I was a kid, it was a very popular prayer that when someone was praying over somebody in particular, when you laid your hands on somebody and you were praying over them, they would often say this prayer, God just put a hedge of protection around this person, right? 
And as I grew up and started to question all the things that I had heard when I was a kid, as kids normally do, I was wondered about that, like, how biblical is that? And it turns out it's completely biblical, isn't it? Here's the hedge of protection. But unfortunately, it's always been around the people of God. So maybe when we pray, we might be able to say, help us to live within the hedge of protection that's already around his people. Wouldn't that be fun? (laughs) It turns out that we are always protected by Jesus, always protected by God, and the measure of how protected we are is by how much we are living within the kingdom of heaven. It is the protection of our souls, not our circumstances. I'm going to say that again. The hedge of protection is the protection of our souls, not of our circumstances. The the same protection, the hedge of protection that we have now is the same hedge of protection that the martyrs had around them. And you can see their circumstances didn't tend to get much better. But their souls stayed in firm possession of God. All right, so where are we? Let's see. We've got the house, the vineyard, the hedge. And then the next detail is a wine press that he built. And the wine press signified the altar of sacrifice in the Old Testament, where the fruit of atoning grace was being squeezed out. And in Israel of old, it was the sacrifice of animals. And the only reason that they sacrificed animals was to point to the greater sacrifice that was going to come, that was Christ Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And the fulfillment of that, the representation we have of that, is the wine that is squeezed out and turned into God's blood, into Christ's blood here at the altar. The sacrament that becomes his blood in a mysterious way. So that's one aspect of it, of the wine press. But there were other opinions of that. Other people said the wine press was the prophets who unleashed a new wave, a new move of the Holy Spirit every time they came on the people of God. They were the wine press that let the move of the Holy Spirit out. Still others said that the wine press was the word of God and that we are the grapes. <laughs> that the word of God squeezes on us and tortures us when it contradicts our fleshly natures. And whatever way you read it, whatever way you want to think about the wine press, the message is still the same, that God has given us a way for our sins to be washed away, whether through the altar or through his word or through the move of the Holy Spirit. Okay, vineyard, hedge, wine press, next tower, next detail is Jesus building a tower, a tower having been built Now, we could look at the tower as being the physical temple that was built because the temple towered over every other building in Jerusalem. So that's one way to look at it. Other church fathers saw it as being the law. The law was a difficult thing to climb. And even when you got up to the pinnacle of following the law and you followed it the most perfectly that you possibly could, it's a tower. The point of getting to the top is to look forward and see Jesus coming. And to know that he's on his way and to recognize, I need to be where he's going. The whole point of the tower was to look for the coming salvation through the gift of the Messiah. So vineyard, hedge, wine press, tower, and then tenants. 
tenants, these husbandmen, husbandmen. And the tenants, this one's easy enough. It's the people who were tasked with taking care of the vineyard and allowing it to produce fruit and not come under attack. They're the ones who took care of the vineyard. And I want you to notice something today. Their job was not just to maintain the grounds and make everything look pretty. Their job was to produce fruit. I want you to notice in this parable, it tells us Christians and the people of God are accountable for producing fruit. It's not a one-time thing where you just sign your membership card and now you're part of the club for life, but we are held accountable for producing fruit. <clears throat> Origen said it this way, that St. Origen, he said that the fruit of the vineyard is a man's blameless life, a life full of righteousness and fighting against the sin in our lives. You guys having fun yet? <laughs> it's a good time, isn't it? I'm so glad they put this one in the lectionary. Why did you even have to say this one anyway? Like, whoo, boy, okay. <laughs> Sour grapes. Sour grapes, yeah, there we go. Let's keep going. Verse 34. So when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one killed another, and stoned another. And again he sent other servants, more than the first. And they did the same to them. You know, all throughout Israel being God's holy nation, he wanted them to live holy lives. That was the whole point. And so he taught them about how to do that in baby steps, with the law being the first baby step, but then whenever they stopped living holy lives, he sent messengers to get them back on track and to get them producing fruit again. <clears throat> and I keep wondering if we tend to be like them sometimes and we miss the messenger. We mistake who the messengers are in our lives and we say, that doesn't feel good, go away. <laughs> or we might attack them back. Think about this. We have books of the Bible, the Word of God, named after people. You ever thought about that? Like, there's only 66 books. Even if every single one of them was named after a person, we're talking about 66 people that have books of the Bible, that have the Word of the Lord named after them in these sections. And amazingly enough, quite a few of them were killed by the people of God. Did you know that? Let me tell you about them. Jeremiah was sent to chastise God's people. And in Jeremiah chapter 20, it says, Pasher, the priest, beat Jeremiah and threw him in the stocks. And later in chapter 26, they pronounced a death sentence over Jeremiah, the messenger of God. And in chapter 38, the Jewish people... The people of God, the people of the nation of Israel, took Jeremiah, put him in a cistern with no water, so that all it was was like a sinkhole of mud, so that he sank in the mud up to his neck, and then he eventually was left for dead, and then finally stoned to death, because the mud didn't do it. Most of the prophets have this kind of an end. Jeremiah was stoned to death. Isaiah 
was sawn in two by a wooden saw. Amos was tortured and killed. Habakkuk was stoned in Jerusalem. Ezekiel was slain by the Chaldeans. Ahijah was slain by a lion. Zechariah killed by Joash the king. This is one of my favorites. Listen to what Joash did. Joash was a really some other kind of a guy. He took him in. He came. He found him in the temple because um, Zechariah was a priest. Found him in the temple, and between the steps at the at the high point of the steps and the altar, right in the middle, killed him where he stood, and then took his blood and sprinkled it on the horns of the altar. How do you like that one? All these prophets today and the preachers throughout the Christian church, you know, if they did their job right and they called for people to produce fruit, you're going to be attacked. You're going to be despised. You're going to be rejected. You're going to be abused because the husbandmen, the people of God, are Christians who think that they don't owe God anything. They're people who think, I go to church to feel good. And when I walk out of church, I had better be riding a high and riding on the clouds. And I know that God's going to make me rich, make me healthy, and take care of me for all of my life. And I don't have to do anything. Unfortunately, it doesn't tend to work that way. And when the people of God move away from God, that's when people like us get killed. I mean, really. When you speak truth to people who deny the truth, generally they don't like it. And they tend to attack back. And aren't we seeing that today, the Christian church being attacked on basically every front where truth is being spoken? Is that a bad thing? Is that a bad thing when we have a hard time getting people in the seats and coming back? Because they come and they hear, oh man, that hurts. I don't like that. And they don't come back. (laughs) We shouldn't be depressed by that. We should know we're doing God's will. And eventually God's going to keep bringing and keep bringing and keep bringing people who need to hear the truth. And it will not be a seed that does not produce fruit. We just may not see the fruit. That's okay. We're doing God's will. Let's keep going. Verse 37. And finally, this is continuing the parable. Finally, the master of the house sent his son to them, saying, surely they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this must not be the son. We don't know this guy. Is that what they said? That's not what they said. Look at what they said. This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance for ourselves. The key here is realizing that when the husbandmen stood on top of the tower and saw the son coming, they said to themselves, This must mean that the master is dead. And now the son is coming to claim his inheritance. And the only thing standing between us and taking possession of this vineyard for ourselves is that guy right there. And if we take care of him, it's all ours and no one has a claim to it. You see that? They said God does not exist in reality. And we know that this is the son of God. Not we didn't recognize him. Not we were ignorant of who he was, but we recognized him and we denied it to ourselves and put ourselves before the Son of God. There's a whole bunch of examples I can give for that. (laughs) 
Because this is an evil that creeps into every part of the world and even into the church, just as it crept into the nation of Israel over and over again. And it starts with people thinking that even though we've been set up to steward the kingdom well, that all of a sudden we're not just meant to steward the kingdom, but now it belongs to us. Now this is not God's, but this is ours. People who think it belongs to them and that they can do whatever they want with it. And one way to look at it is to look at people like me with a chastising eye. And I invite you to do that. It's a good thing to do. Priests, pastors, bishops, and popes who are all tasked with the stewardship and the governing of the kingdom. And when we do it right, it produces fruit. It produces fruit for the kingdom. It produces the fruit of sinless lives in the people that we are governing, the people that we're placed over. But if we do it wrong, we become those governors who one church father said like this, these, come let us kill him and have his inheritance, are the usual thoughts of all worldly priests who take no thought of how the people shall live without sin. But look to how much is offered in the church and esteem that as the prophet of their ministry. That was 1,400 years ago. And it's all changed, right? We've learned our lesson. Now everything has changed, and we're not like that anymore, right? Well, there are people like the luxury bishop in Germany. How many people have heard of the luxury bishop? He goes by another name, too, which is the Bishop of Bling. Okay? He's in, he was in Germany, and he got in big trouble because he spent $43 million of the church's money to remodel not the church, not the school, not the grounds of the church, but his own personal, personal mansion and estate, including $2.3 million for bronze window frames. And he got in trouble, and he got removed. Thank God the Pope said, you're out. <laughs> I'm sorry, you're out. You know that house that you just built? We're selling it, and we're going to give it to the poor. You're out. Praise God that God has given us a Pope like Pope Francis. Amen? That's right. Or someone like Bishop Myers in New Jersey, because that's Europe. Europeans are kind of frou-frou. Like, they like fancy stuff. They've got all this ancient stuff. Okay. But Americans aren't like that. Well, how about Bishop Myers in New Jersey? who had a retirement house built for $800,000. And that was, okay, I mean, it's Jersey. You know, things are expensive. But then he expanded it. So $500,000 of his expansion went to include an indoor swimming pool, a hot tub, three fireplaces, and a library. Oh, Oh, and by the way, this was his retirement house. This was his beach house. This wasn't even his normal house. Now, listen carefully, because I don't want to have this conversation after church. (laughs) So listen, am I saying, or did the early church fathers, or did Jesus say that bishops and priests should not have anything nice or should not be paid? Is that what I'm saying? No. What he and the fathers are saying is that we are strictly charged to govern the church well and to be good stewards of the kingdom. 
The problem with these men is not that they weren't entitled to their bread or a salary or anything like that, but that what they used what was offered up to the church as their own profit. They said, God, that's not yours anymore. Now it's mine. It's not yours. It's mine. And it's not just bishops. I have to say most American pastors do a really good job with this for no other reason than they don't have a lot of money to spend in the first place. So they can't misuse money they don't have, right? (laughs) But there are some pastors in the American church that could be changing the world for the poor. They could be changing the world of the destitute, even one person at a time, completely changing their lives. But instead they use church funds as their own profits. I've heard of stories of buying multiple jet planes and huge mansions and this sort of thing. And it might be easy for you to agree with me that condemning these men, rightfully so, because they're wasting what God has given to them. But let me not let you forget, that was weird, that you are also stewards of God's kingdom. That the kingdom of God does not live within these four walls, but it lives in all of our lives, in every day of our lives. Don't forget Origen said the kingdom of God is the righteousness in all of our lives. And each one of you have been given time, have been given earthly goods, have been given good work to do, have been given the gifts of family, all these good things by our great God. And if you're not making time to pray, if you're not making time to read your Bible, if you're not waging war on the demons in your life, If you're not striving to take on holiness and righteousness in your lives, you are just like the Bishop of Bling, wasting the things that God has given you on frivolity and on selfishness. Let's remember that God sent his son into this world calling for you to live lives of righteousness and of holiness. Verse 39, And they took the son... And they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. And Jesus was taken by the temple guards to the high priests, to Pilate, and then thrown out of Jerusalem and slain on Calvary's hill. And we also take Christ into our hearts only sometimes to banish him out of our lives and require the reward of his sacrifice all over again. Verse 40, When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes... What will he do to those tenants? And they said to him, this is the people. They know the answer. They said, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyards to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. And Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Let me tell you about that. The cornerstone, what they did is they took these giant chunks of stone, and whatever one was like the most square, they didn't want to have to shape the whole thing. They would just put that at the bottom and then build everything else off of that and around that. And occasionally you would get this giant stone that just didn't fit. And so you'd kind of put it off to the side, and maybe somebody else would use it, or maybe you could break it apart. But there was constantly this rejection of cornerstone saying, you can't be the foundation. 
And Jesus and St. Paul especially always use this imagery to show that a lot of times we build our lives on the wrong foundation. We reject Christ as the cornerstone in our lives. <clears throat> and I'd like to suggest to you that not only do we sometimes say we're not going to build our lives on that cornerstone, we're going to build on something else. But I'd like to suggest to you, I was, lis- I was listening to some things this morning, and I was up very, very early, 5 o'clock in the morning, and there was this huge gust of wind. Did you guys hear that this morning? Giant wind that just... And I swear, I, I'm not lying to you, I felt the house move like a quarter of an inch to the left. <laughs> and I wonder if it's that way in our lives sometimes, where we have built our lives on the cornerstone. We say Jesus is what we've built our lives on. We set up our lives around him. But then the hurricanes of life come, and the tornadoes and the earthquakes of life come, and they shift us ever so slightly, and ever so slightly, and ever so slightly, and ever so slightly, and ever so slightly. And if we don't take the time to correct it, we can find ourselves completely off the cornerstone altogether. This is the Christian life, saying, okay, let's bring it back. All right, let's bring it back. Let's bring it back. And he continued in verse 43 and said, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. Tell me Jesus didn't have guts. He's standing in the temple, leading up to one of the highest holy days with all these Jewish people who've traveled from all around the world to come be in this place at this time. He's got their attention. Everybody's focused on him, listening to him. And he says, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. You! And will be given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Now let's not forget, we all have a choice. We all have a choice. That's what the people in the temple knew. If he had said this and they didn't realize we have a choice in this, they would have taken him and murdered him right there. (laughs) You just don't say it, right? We all have a choice. If the husbandmen had changed their ways, had repented and fallen back under the Lord's direction, even these high priests would have resumed their roles in the kingdom. I want you to see that. They would have. And I want you to know, as long as you're breathing, it's not too late to be welcomed back into the kingdom. None are too lost nor forsaken. And it usually happens that those who rise to the greatest heights while ignoring God, the the bigger your tower gets without the wrong foundation, the harder and longer it is that you're going to fall. And when you fall back down... Back down to earth in the foundation that is Christ Jesus and you smash into that rock who is Christ Jesus, you're broken into pieces so that Jesus can put the pieces back together. The point is not your destruction. The point is, come to me all who are broken and I will put you back together. I will build something in you and with you that is better than you even ever imagined having before. But when the rock comes in judgment on that last day, where we all go when we die, that day of our final judgment, those who are departed from Christ, those who rejected him and ran away from him and never ran back to him, (coughs) 
those people who in our selfishness said, this life that you have given to me is mine, and you can't tell me what to do with my own life. The selfishness, the ego. In the parable, Jesus is quoting Psalm chapter 1. Because the actual language, when you look at it in the Greek, it's not just will be crushed, it's will be ground into powder and spread on the wind. Someone says, the wicked are like the dust which the wind scatters abroad on the face of the earth. That's what Jesus is saying. We have a choice. We have a choice. Do we repent? Do we strive to thank God for the lives that he's given to us, for the grace, the salvation, and even the gift of another day? Do we take the things that he's given to us? Do we use them well to the glory of his name? Do we take them and then use them and then offer them back to him? Do we do that? The days that we have are not our own, nor are we owed them. But they're a gift from our loving Father for the purpose of drawing us deeper into the loving relationship we have with him and into the work of the kingdom. Deeper and deeper. This is why Christ came, to bring us into the fullness of life where our lives are not our own. If you think that your life is your own, you're living a shallow, (coughs) pale version of life. Where our meaning is found is in being a means to an end in God's kingdom. Where meaning is found in our lives is in being a means to an end in God's kingdom. My prayer is that something that you've heard today is touching your heart, that something inside you is stirring up, and that you'll see that we are a people who accept God's gifts and lovingly offer them back to him. God, I ask you now to give us a desire in our lives to be made holy and to be made righteous in your eyes. Always help us to return back to you, Heavenly Father. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, now and forever. Amen. Please stand for prayer.